you are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Moon Roberts. This is Joyu, a prequel to my epic space opera novel, Musketeer Space. Uh, this is set six months before the the novel itself. If you enjoy this novella, I think you'll probably enjoy the novel. Uh, it's a lot like this, but there's more of it. A lot more swords, a lot more spaceships, a lot more kissing. Joyu, Chapter 6, Resolution, Leaping the Flames Resolution was the hardest day of Joyu. When she was younger and first away from home, this was the day when Aramis made a subspace call, no matter what else was going on, to hear the voices of her large sprawling family, all shouting over each other to tell her how much she was missed. Now she'd been away from home too long, and calling her family was no longer an option. It hurt sometimes, but it had become a steady pain deep in her gut, as much a part of her as her arms and legs. She had Paris. She had a sword and a spaceship. She had Athos and Porthos. She had the Church of All. Today of all days, Aramis had the Church of All. And as usual, when she was thinking of home, her heart led her to the Luxembourg. Aramis rose early, planning to get to dawn service. Inside the little church, that looked exactly like the one she had first attended as a child, Aramis contemplated the stars and listened to the journeys of the cosmonauts. The choir raised their voices in song so loud and joyous that she was sure it could be heard from several decks away. In the silence that followed the songs, Aramis whispered her resolutions for the year ahead, along with everyone else. I will love and be loved. I will serve God and the crown. I shall be a good friend and a good soldier. This was the craziest joyu that Aramis had ever experienced, but there was time for this. For a short while, she allowed herself to contemplate that other life, the one she'd always thought she would live. Perhaps next year. Aramis rose and left the church. Athos and Porthos waited for her on the steps outside. Almost got arrested twice, volunteered Athos. I don't know what made them think we were hanging around the Luxembourg for a duel, Porthos added, with a sly smile. No faith. Aramis linked her arms in those of her friends. Come on, we must save Paris or no one gets to open their presents this year. If it is the cardinal behind this, we can't stop it, said Athos. We can't fight her. She's too damned powerful. Aramis frowned. You really think it's her? Some of these incidents are bordering on sacrilege. Whether it's her or not, we're going to have a hell of a diplomatic incident on our hands if the regents gets any more riled up, said Porthos. Never mind the ambassador of valour, though let's stop and think about the trouble that the regents could cause by directly insulting valour. But at this rate, she's going to say or do something that Prince Alec finds unforgivable. Marriage, said Athos in disgust. Not for me, thanks. I'm trying to give it up. 
said Aramis lightly, and didn't remember until she saw Porthos's face that her words were tactless. Damn it. Athos didn't seem to notice. Today is the day of winter light, devoted to leaping the flames, he volunteered. Porthos shuddered. Fire? Fire is worse than snow. Leaping the flames is a fertility ritual, Athos explained. An ancient form of marriage. Porthos brightened at that. Oh, metaphorical flames. Much better. We can handle metaphorical flames. Athos's calm chimed, and he spoke briefly to Treville, before stepping along faster, towing Porthos and Aramis both along with him. The dead district is on fire, he reported in a crisp voice. We need to get there now. Metaphorical fire, Porthos said hopefully. But no, not with that look on Athos's face. Actual fire, he said grimly. This time, it was Aramis's turn to shudder. Fire on a space station was everyone's nightmare. The dead district was the kind of living on the fringes of society community that always somehow managed to form in the lower levels of every space station and satellite city in the solar system, no matter how many times those in power tried to make sure that they did not. There was a higher proportion of dirtsiders living here, tourists whose credit had run out, aliens whose visas had expired, and former planetary residents who had turned to crime or sex work. Every now and then, the church sent down the red hammers or priests or charity workers to clean the damned place out and ship the residents back to their home planets, finding them hospice beds and school placements. And then every few months, the dead district would reform in a different spot, in the maze of vents and tunnels and storage pockets beneath that kept Paris satellite turning. The current dead district was close enough to the central power spheres that literally ran Paris satellite from within that the fire was a major problem. It had been extinguished by the time Aramis and the others arrived. All available personnel, including Red Hammers and Musketeers, helped with the evacuation, clearing tunnels so that Meditex could get through to help the wounded and victims of smoke inhalation. What's with the masks? Aramis asked Athos as they passed each other at one point, her carrying a child on her hip towards the nearest first aid station, and he returning from delivering a couple of burns victims to a med station. Athos tilted his head at her, not sure what she was asking, and Aramis gestured with a wide arm. Not the oxygen masks, the mask masks. Many of the civilians had been in costumes, particularly the children. The masks were scary faces, but Aramis had noticed something many of them had in common, a repeated motif of water, air, earth or fire. An elemental cultural aspect she was missing, she assumed. Athos looked surprised that she had noticed. Perhaps it was something he took for granted, from that new aristocrat childhood of his that he never spoke about. It's a wedding thing. Today is one of the days when those who follow the elemental path pledge their troth to each other by leaping the flames. It's traditional to have attendants who represent each of the elements. Every dirt side kid, religious or not, 
knows that if they run around wearing an element mask on the sixth day of winterlight, their chances of being invited to a ceremony is high. Aramis was bemused. And that's something kids want to do? There's usually food, Athos said dryly. Sweets, that sort of thing. Oh. She glanced around, wondering how many of these children had missed out on a meal, or at the very least a treat, because of the fire. Are the church bringing in food supplies for the victims, as well as medical assistance? They'd better be. Several hours later, when things had settled down somewhat, Aramis and Athos found Porthos, and the three of them sat down to swig water in a quiet spot near some of the worst of the fire damage. Some people go all out with this costume thing, Aramis said at one point. She saw a man standing still on the edge of the crowd, watching the volunteers and services work the area, still dispensing aid to those who needed it. There was something familiar about him, that man, though she couldn't see any distinguishing features because he wore a head-to-toe robe of fluttering flames made from brightly coloured fabric. Is that what the well-dressed bridegroom is wearing this season? Aramis asked, meaning it as a joke. Athos frowned, though, looking the figure up and down. Perhaps, he said. And there was an uneasiness in his tone that they both responded to. What is it? Porthos asked. His sleeves, Athos said. And something about the way he stands. I've seen him before. I know him. Aramis glanced across at Porthos, who shrugged. Do you know an interesting fact about arsonists? said Athos slowly. They almost always return to the scene of the crime, to check out the damage they caused. That man's sleeves look genuinely burnt. He broke into a run from a standstill. Aramis hesitated only for a moment, then tore after him. Damn it, no one who drank the way Athos did should be able to move that fast. The masked man in the fire costume reacted to Athos's approach by darting away. He might have made it if he didn't have to curve around the crowd to reach an exit. Athos wasn't close enough to stop him reaching the sphere lift, but the curve of the man's path pulled him back around to where Porthos waited, biding her time. She caught the man in a crash tackle, slamming him to the ground. Athos crashed into them both a few moments later. That was fun, said Porthos, not even out of breath. Let's do it again. Athos reached out briefly, touching their prisoners' sleeves. They were indeed charred, smeared with heat damage. Let's see what you have to say for yourself, he said. Since Porthos was pinning the man to the ground and Athos was calling the shots, it was down to Aramis to remove the flame mask, so they could get a look at their suspect. She hesitated only a moment before pulling it off. This wasn't the worst possible face she could have seen under that mask, but it wasn't far off. From the pained look on Athos's face, he agreed with her. Linton Grey, of Valor, he sighed. Consider yourself in the custody of the Royal Musketeers. I believe that I have diplomatic immunity, replied the Duchess of Buckingham's aide, untroubled by the situation. Luckily for us, we can still detain you for your own safety for up to twenty-four hours, 
said Porthos cheerfully. She bounced slightly on his chest. I'm betting that if the Duchess of Buckingham knows anything about diplomacy, that immunity of yours is going to mysteriously vanish at some point during that time period. She stood up, stretched, and reached a friendly hand down to their suspect. Come on, let's be having you. As Linton Grey rose, Porthos snapped a pair of handcuffs around his wrists. Aramis hadn't even known that Porthos carried cuffs in a regular kit. Arresting people wasn't in their regular duties, though it was well within their powers to do so. This is bad, said Athos in an undertone, as Porthos gave Grey a shove to start him on his way. So bad, Aramis agreed, matching his tone. But it's not our problem any more. Mary, assure you, Athos, we cracked the case. Athos gave her a look that suggested she was being overly optimistic. Call your girlfriend, Aramis. This is going to be one hell of a PR job to manage. Ex-girlfriend, Aramis sighed, but she made the call. After one of the longest days of Athos's life, since he first joined the Musketeers, he was looking forward to the silence of his empty apartment. He only had another day or two before Grimaud would be back from her holiday, and while she was as taciturn as he could ever hope for in an engineer, unless he stole Aramis's android and reprogrammed it to be mute, a possibility he had not entirely ruled out, she still filled the space, and living with her was not the same as living alone. Actual solitude was a rare thing for him, and Athos prized it above almost all things. It was 2300 hours, and he was yet to pour himself a drink. Tomorrow was the final day of Joyeux. There was no more case to be solved, no more festive terrorism plaguing the space station, and he wasn't even on duty. He could have an early night. He had only been home for ten minutes or so, when he heard the persistent chime of someone leaning hard on his door alert. Athos rolled his eyes, psyching himself up to convince Porthos that he did not need to be fed, and Aramis that he did not need to be hugged or otherwise kept company. No other possibility occurred to him. Chevreuse stood on his doorstep, wearing a plain grey flight suit, her hair back to its natural blonde bob. Athos blinked, staring at her. Aramis isn't here, was the first thing he thought to say. The minister looked exhausted. I've already spoken to Aramis. I'm here to see you. Oh. This made a whole lot of no sense at all, but he stepped back to let her in. How are things at the palace? Messy, Chevreuse said, collapsing on his couch and putting her feet up on his coffee table, boots and all. Irritating? Final. I think I'm missing something. You need to give me a drink before I tell you more. Seemed reasonable. Athos fished two bottles out of his cupboard, one wine and one whiskey. Chevreuse pointed at the wine, and he took time to find actual glasses. Linton bloody grey, he observed as he poured. I know, Chevreuse huffed. I liked him, the bastard. Athos thought of the almost flirtation that... He wasn't sure it really happened or not the night of Misrule. 
Me too, actually. She gave him an odd look over the back of the couch. You hate everyone. And yet... He passed her a tolerable glass of red. How are we on the scale of diplomatic disasters? Maybe a seven out of ten? It hasn't hit the press yet, thank God and all. Our Mr Grey has confessed to the festive terrorism attacks on behalf of a group called the Independent Valour Party. Claims they supplied him with the nanoviruses. All he had to do was set them off on timers across the station. Buck has denied all connection with the group and stripped Grey of the diplomatic protection of her office, but her face is all over the IVP social media accounts. She's their preferred candidate for world leaders, so the connection doesn't look good. Athos raised his eyebrows in mild surprise. You don't think Buckingham was actually behind it? I don't think she's this stupid. But she doesn't have to be bankrolling the group to be compromised by Gray's actions and his arrest. An uncomfortable look crossed Chavreuse's face. And then there's the other thing. Athos had known this was coming. The deleted security footage. It makes it look like I was covering up something political that night, she admitted. Well, you kind of were. Chevreuse gave him a filthy look. It was two people being careless and impulsive in the wrong bit of corridor, not an interplanetary coup. I'm sure the Regents was very understanding about the distinction. Athos paused. I hate to ask. He needed to know how badly he was implicated in her disaster. She gave him a look that made it clear how transparent he was. No, you're not in trouble. I kept your name out of it. Thanks, said Athos. He came to sit on the couch with her. Chev lifted her legs to make room for him, then settled them in his lap. I'm a little short on job prospects if Musketeer falls through. Chevreuse patted him on the shoulder. The position of ambassador's aide is open. The successful applicant would have to be prepared to spend the rest of the term on honour, though. Buck is being strategically repositioned far from Paris satellite, Luna Palais, and the Regents' hot-muscled husband. So she's officially innocent of wrongdoing, but still being blamed behind the scenes. Politics, said Chevreuse simply. Athos leaned in, frowning at her over the top of his wine glass. What aren't you telling me? It's not a secret, Chevreuse said, sounding fed up. I've retold it a bunch of times tonight, so forgive me if I drift off during this part. You know, the Cardinal's had it in for me for, well, a while, since about five minutes after she met you. What can I say? I make an impression. Chevreuse took a long, thoughtful swallow of wine. The Regents wants to blame someone for this clusterfuck happening under her nose, and the Cardinal has managed to convince her that my loyalties are too closely tied to the Prince Consort. Thanks to that piece of footage I made disappear. So, Buck's not the only one being sent into voluntary exile. Athos hissed at the unfairness of it all. Seriously? Chevreuse pretended she wasn't bothered in the least. Oh yes, Paris Satellite and I are done with each other, for now anyway. The Regents might take me back sometime in the future, but I'm not holding my breath. 
Her arch smile softened. Don't look so stricken, Athos. I'm not short on resources. Montbazon and I renewed our marriage contract this morning, and I'm off to stay at one of his holdings on Artemisia. I can be a lady of leisure until I find someone willing to let me play politics again. He fiddled with the clasp on her boot, since it was right there in his lap. When do you go? Tomorrow. So soon. The seventh day of Joyo is for family and new beginnings. The sooner I'm out of here, the better. Let someone else deal with the trial of Linton Grey and Prince Alec's wandering hands. I'm done. But, said Athos, still shocked. But Fleur de Lis. Her facade cracked. He actually saw her lip wobble. Shut, shut up. They play zero-G team joust all over the solar system. I'll find another team. Anyway, we had a perfect season. A perfect, unbeaten fucking season, and no one else has ever done that. Best to quit while I'm ahead, don't you think? Chevreuse smirked a little behind her wine glass. Pack the trophy in my bags. The prince will never miss it, right? Here was the thing that Athos was blown away by. Not that Chev had been screwed over, or even that Cardinal Richelieu had managed to turn a disaster like this into an opportunity to rid herself of a political enemy. No, the thing that was currently foremost in his head was that he was going to miss Chevreuse. When had that happened? He didn't say that, of course. What he said was, Do you think the Cardinal was behind this whole thing? Behind Linton Grey and the festive terrorism? Chevreuse looked grim. Let's look at the results. Not me being kicked out, that's gravy on top, but the actual plot resulted in elementals looking like bad guys, more of a wedge between the regents and her elemental husband than ever before, the Duchess of Buckingham losing any chance to gain political mileage out of this visit, which has to be a blow for Valor's bid for independence, and Oh yes, the Cardinal looks like a hero to everyone because she was attacked at the height of popular sentiment around the Church of Moor. A whole bunch of joyu presents for the Cardinal. Tied up with ribbon, Chevreuse reached out and took Athos's near-empty glass from him and placed it carefully on the ground with her own. I don't want to talk about her eminence anymore. What are you doing? She sat there expectantly for a moment, her pale blue eyes fixed on his, saying goodbye, idiot. That was right, she was leaving tomorrow. Doing the rounds of everyone you know? Chevreuse leaned in and punched him lightly on the shoulder. Just the people I'm going to miss. Montbazon, Aramis, my book club, Alec and Conrad. Our favourite physio, the one with the magic hands and the really good paint pills. Athos tilted his head in her direction. I'm a little surprised to find myself on that list. Chevreuse rolled her eyes at him. I know most of our socialising has been because of my relationship with Aramis, but you do realise that somewhere along the way you became one of my closest friends. Athos blinked. That was unexpected. I was not aware. You're hopeless. And I will miss you. 
She nodded towards the wine bottle on the bar. I'll admit I left you until last because I knew you'd provide the best drinks. Oh, he said, and smiled sidelong at her. Now it all makes sense. She held out her hand. A pleasure working with you, Captain Athos. Athos hesitated only a moment before pulling her into a rough hug, as he had been taught by the two most infuriating people in his life. Glad to know you, Madame Chevreuse. Oh, that sounds terrible, she muttered into his neck. I'd better get someone else to give me a ministry position ASAP. What's the government like on Artemisia? Corrupt, probably. I like a challenge. They could have left it at that. They really could. That would have been the sensible thing to do. But Chevreuse was warm in his arms and this was goodbye and perhaps it was an overdose of joyous sentiment that made Athos turn his face into her cheek and breathe against her skin. Oh, Chevreuse breathed as Athos dragged his mouth down the side of her neck, scratching her lightly with his beard. That doesn't make things easier. No, not at all, he agreed. Ten times worse. About that, yes. Her mouth found his, wet and hungry and wanting. There was none of that tentative brush of lips they'd almost exchanged on the night of misrule. This was something else altogether. Chevreuse was practically in his lap, her hands framing his face, and every time Athos thought about voicing what a bad idea this was, she moved her hips against his, sending waves of heat directly into his veins. So, she said finally, her fingers curling into his hair, and her mouth reddened from all the kissing. What are your resolutions for the new year ahead? I will not make pointless resolutions that I don't intend to keep, said Athos. Sometimes the inevitable was there to be given into. Works for me, she said, and closed her lips around the edge of his ear. Shall we skip the angst and get straight to the regrettable but extremely hot sex? That's what I love most about you, Chevreuse, Athos drawled. You're a fucking romantic. The joyeux resolutions of Athos. I will not sleep with my friend's recently ex-girlfriend. I will not self-sabotage. I will not blame the wine afterwards. Thank you for listening to Sheep Might Fly. Uh, you can sign up for my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR or at Sheep Might Fly. Find me on Facebook at TansyRR Books. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of cool rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. There is a new novella exclusive to Patreon dropping later this week, which I'm very excited about the first of the Gargoyle Mysteries. Uh, you can also download copies of both Joyu and the entire Musketeer Space massive space opera novel uh, for no additional cost with only a one or two dollar pledge. I will see you next week for the final chapter of Joyu. Mm-hmm.